Welcome back to Coriam, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Gilberti, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ian Whitman. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Ian is the Chief of Emergency Medicine at NYU Langone Health, Brooklyn, and Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine in our department. One of his personal interests and clinical passions has been the treatment of opioid use disorders in EDs. And for the past year, he has been the director of the NYU Emergency Medicine Opioid Task Force, as well as the enterprise-wide director of the Naloxone Distribution Program. This episode is dedicated to covering the opioid epidemic and what emergency physicians can do to change the tide of this growing problem. This topic is very important to our field for many reasons. Opioid overdoses are now responsible for more deaths than motor vehicle collisions and ranks as number one as the cause of death for Americans under 50. It is also important because emergency physicians play a role in this public health crisis as both part of the problem and the solution. Now, Ian, can you start the discussion by talking about the current state of affairs? So, yes, absolutely. And again, thank you for having me. The first question I like to ask people when we're talking about the opioid crisis is, why should I care? Now, it seems like sort of a silly question potentially, but I think emergency departments are extremely busy places. We have a lot of competing priorities. We have a lot of sick patients, and it's difficult to get people to understand why this is our crisis and not someone else's. Uh, We are not addiction psychiatrists. We are not necessarily the, the experts in this by default, but unfortunately, in almost every emergency department in America, we are seeing these patients and we are the main touch point into healthcare for patients that are suffering from opioid use disorders. Just to put a fine point on it, in 2017, drug overdose deaths increased for the 17th consecutive year, and we had 70,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States. Of those, around 45,000 were opioid-related. That's more deaths than were ever observed in one year during the height of the HIV crisis. As you said, more deaths than from automobile accidents and more deaths than from gun violence. Every day in America, we have about 130 people who die of opioid addiction, and these are all preventable deaths. And I think it's important that we, as healthcare organizations and as healthcare practitioners, do what we can to try to stem this epidemic. And to that end, what non-pharmacologic interventions can emergency physicians employ to decrease opioid use while patients are in the ED, and also the amount of opioids prescribed at discharge? When we're talking about what we can do as emergency physicians to address the opioid epidemic, I think the solutions come in two flavors. The first thing that we can do is clean up our own house. Now, what do I mean by cleaning up our own house? It means decreasing unnecessary opioid prescribing, and it means pivoting towards non-opioid medications for many conditions. We've done a lot of work at NYU to try to encourage the use of opioid analgesic alternatives. We've pushed NSAID-first protocols. We've worked on ketamine protocols for non-narcotic pain medication. We also have pushed the use of ultrasound-guided nerve blocks. The best example that I always like to use for ultrasound-guided nerve blocks are if you have a 75-year-old woman who falls and breaks her hip, the amount of opioids that it would typically take to make her not be in significant pain is quite large. On the other hand, if you do a femoral nerve block, you can bring that patient's pain score down to zero, and you have none of the associated risks of hypopnea, polypharmacy, and addiction that you would otherwise have by using opioid analgesics. Lastly, there's research ongoing both in this institution and in other institutions looking into physical therapy for people with musculoskeletal pain to try to limit the need for those patients to go home with opioid prescriptions. We've also put in some EMR fixes. There are some easy things that we can do to try to limit the amount of opioids that are leaving our emergency departments. 
The first thing that, we've, that we did a few years ago was decrease the default numbers on our prescriptions. Until about five years ago, if you went into our EMR and you went to prescribe medication, the default was 30 pills. So if you were sending someone out with Norco, you were sending them out with 30 pills. If you were sending somebody out with MSIR, you were sending them out with 30 pills. We decreased that to a four-day supply, so that goes down to 12 or 16 pills, depending on how often you're giving the medication. And essentially, overnight, we were able to cut the number of pills that were leaving our department in half with no quality decrease. In addition, we've mandated the use of iStop for any prescription over four days. Now, every state now has a prescription monitoring program. They all have different names. Many of them are able to talk to one another. So if you're living in a different state than the state the patient is from and or you're on a border area to another state, you can check other states' databases as well. And this allows us to just make sure that any patient that's receiving opioid pain medication is not doing so for an inappropriate purpose that we are able to limit diversion and abuse. Great, so a lot of interesting stuff here, education, endorsing opioid alternatives, PT, and trying to affect prescribing behaviors. Let's move on to pharmacologic interventions. In the field and in the ED, Narcan is commonly given for overdoses that warrant it, but there's an increasing movement to equip patients, bystanders, and family members with this life-saving medication. What are the evolving methods of distributing Narcan and potential barriers to its use in this group? In New York State, we have the ability to become Narcan prescribing entities in our hospitals. So we run at NYU a Narcan prescribing program where patients that have near-fatal overdose, patients that screen positive for opioids can be given a Narcan kit prior to discharge. In addition, a family member or friend can be given a kit as well. And what formulations are available to be distributed from the ED? The typical formulations for naloxone for discharge are either intramuscular naloxone, which is known as EBSIO, or intranasal naloxone. The intramuscular naloxone is quite easy to use. The challenge is that it is extremely expensive. And so most of the Narcan dispensing programs are using nasal naloxone because it is orders of magnitude less expensive. And besides price, Ian, are there any other barriers for patients to receive Narcan or for providers to prescribe it from the emergency department? I think the main barrier is whether or not your hospital has the infrastructure to provide these kits. Again, in New York State, there's an ability to provide these kits free of charge to patients. Depending on the patient's insurance status, the state you're in, the local regulations are going to change whether or not you can give the medication. You can certainly write a prescription for this medication for any and everyone, and I would encourage everyone to write anyone with an opioid use disorder a prescription for naloxone. But as far as whether you can give it out yourself, unfortunately, is going to be a, a local phenomenon. That said, most hospitals understand what an important crisis this is. Most C-suites are excited to do what they can to help. So I think interested parties, whether they be residents or attendings or pharmacists, can likely begin a process in their local hospital to start giving out kits if it's something that they have a personal interest in. Now, for patients who are ready to enter treatment, how can we best get them plugged into a network that will continue to encourage their path to opioid independence? So unfortunately, that's not a straightforward answer, and that's what makes this challenging. Ultimately, it's about building partnerships between your emergency department and outpatient providers that have the ability to take these patients on longitudinally. I think there's a lot of things that we can do as emergency physicians to recognize and begin treatment. But unfortunately, ultimately, we have to pass these on 
to longitudinal providers. Much like the new hypertensive or the new diabetic, you're screening and discovering a new disease. You can start the treatment, but you're not going to be the longitudinal treatment provider. And unfortunately, these patients do require a lot of longitudinal treatment, especially in the beginning as they transition from street or illegal opioid use to medically assisted therapy with buprenorphine in particular. In New York City, there are quite a few resources. There are clinics available that can take walk-ins. There are resources from the New York City and New York State Departments of Health. But a lot of the work that's been done has been ground-up work. And I'm thinking of work that was done uh, on a program called Buffalo Matters in Buffalo, New York. A lot of the work that's been done in New York City the work that was done that was sort of the landmark work on this by Gail D'Onofrio at Yale, a lot of the work that's been done so far on building out these networks has been very organic, has been a few physicians talking to one another and building out a quick program. In order for an emergency physician to effectively refer patients, he or she really only needs one or two community partners. So if you happen to live in a city or a town that has relatively limited resources, you really need only find one or two partners to start referring patients. Ian, I'm sure you've seen more and more providers are completing their MAT or medication-assisted treatment training in obtaining their X waivers. How does this change the landscape of treatment of opioid use disorders? The actual waiver training really only impacts a small number of the patients that you're going to see. The majority of patients that you're going to see are going to be in moderate withdrawal, and ideally you would create a system whereby you would give them one dose of buprenorphine, which does not require a waiver, and then you pass them off within 24 hours to an outpatient clinic who's able to accept them and follow them longitudinally. The reality is that not every city has that availability, and some patients, as everybody that works in emergency medicine know, don't come in during normal business hours, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. So for the patient that comes in on a Friday night, or for the patient who comes in and the clinic that you're working with doesn't actually have 24-hour availability or doesn't have availability tomorrow, availability would be two or three days away, the advantage to the buprenorphine waiver is you can start that patient on buprenorphine and you can give them a brief bridging prescription to get them to their clinic. And that's the game changer. The reason why the bup waiver is so important is for those patients who otherwise might fall through the cracks, they don't need to fall through the cracks anymore because you can provide them with a brief bridge prescription after their ED-initiated buprenorphine. In some of our clinics here at NYU and Bellevue, providers are prescribing bup to patients who are not in active withdrawal so that they can do a home induction. Is this something that we can consider in the emergency department? Home induction is absolutely something you can consider. There are a few caveats. First, for patients who are using methadone specifically, the half-life of the drug makes it so that buprenorphine induction can be potentially dangerous for withdrawal. So I would not recommend home induction for that, those patients. In fact, I might recommend expert consultation prior to buprenorphine induction generally for those patients. The other group of patients to be somewhat wary of is patients with polypharmacy or polysubstance abuse. Those patients that are also abusing benzodiazepines or alcohol heavily are at slightly increased risk and might be better served by having an induction in the emergency department. The alternative always if you have it available, is to get people into a clinic the next day, by which time they likely would be in mild to moderate withdrawal. But it is a reasonable option, and it is something that people are exploring and using actively. Excellent, Ian. Thank you. And now that we in medicine are more aware of the magnitude of this problem and the role that providers play, what is on the horizon? What are the new tools that providers will have to combat the opioid epidemic? 
So there is some work on the horizon with different formulations of buprenorphine. The FDA-approved depobuprenorphine is approved for a month. There is an FDA approval in process for buprenorphine for one week. There's also been some work done on using naltrexone for opioid withdrawal. That said, I think we have a great toolkit for treating this epidemic now. I think it's more about recognition and making sure that we build systems around these patients so that we can support them through their journey. Okay, a lot of good stuff here. Let's review the key points and tactics we can use to decrease patients' exposures to opioids. First, consider subdissociative ketamine and nerve blocks for acute pain that would traditionally require IV opiates, and try NSAIDs first before reaching for these medications. If you do end up prescribing these medications, send them on a short supply and perform an eye-stop check to investigate potential opioid misuse and diversion. Next, Narcan is not just for acute overdose treatment by EMS and within the ED anymore. We can equip the very first responders, patients, family members, and friends with Narcan kits prior to discharge. In New York State, we can prescribe Narcan to patients with near-fatal overdose or who screen positive for an opioid use disorder. And be mindful that the intranasal formulation is going to be the cheaper and more commonly prescribed option. Third, buprenorphine induction can be done in the ED for patients in active withdrawal as calculated by their COWS score. A calculator for this is available on MDCalc and will be linked in the show notes. And know that you do not need the X waiver to give a dose of buprenorphine in the ED for three days. Now, if you do have an X waiver and there are no contraindications, home induction can be considered in the patient who is not actively withdrawing but would like to enter medication-assisted treatment. For all patients initiated on buprenorphine, longitudinal care has to be established. SAMHSA's Buprenorphine Practitioner Locator site is a great resource, searchable by zip code, and will be linked in the show notes, along with a printout for patient instructions for home induction. As the opioid epidemic continues to plague our shifts and claim lives, we emergency providers can change our practice and take advantage of these tools in our fight against this scourge. That is all for this episode. Continue to follow us on Twitter and visit us on our site, coriam.net. Until the next one, this is Brian Gaberti, signing off.